Welcome to Flagged, a current affairs and pop culture podcast that will unpack a topic each episode, identifying the glaring red, nuanced orange and hopeful greens. My name is Helen Karakulak and I'm an Adelaide-based journalist joined by a variety of guests to cover realities of relationships, career development and complexities of conflict that turned their worlds upside down. From the gritty to the glittery, this is Flagged. Joining me today is Dean Plesser. Dean is a 20-year-old creative arts student and an advocate for the LGBTQIA community. He recently spoke at the 4th National LGBTIQ conference, Better Together. Dean is open-minded, welcoming, and willing to share his experiences to make the world a better place. Thanks for joining me. Hello, thank you for having me. Not a problem. Let's start with Better Together. First of all, can you tell us a bit about the conference and what capacity you were involved and how you found the experience? Yeah, so the Better Together conference is a national LGBTQIA conference and it brings together a lot of different speakers, a lot of different organisations from all across Australia and we all just come together to speak on everything and everything LGBT. And that especially includes stuff that isn't talked about in everyday life. So that's a lot of the legislation stuff. There's, there was a fair amount of caucuses and stuff that happened there as well. Yeah, just so many different speakers like of intersection, intersectional um, identities as well. So like queer Indigenous peoples and um, queer disabled people and just absolutely everything and anything that you can think intersects with the LGBTQIA identity. So it is a really, really cool conference. So <laughs> yeah, awesome. I imagine it would have been very exciting to get that invite. So um, you first heard about it through YAXA, the Youth mm. Affairs Council of South Australia. Yeah, yeah. And that was because you had previously written on their blog, The Smashed Avocado for Ida Hobbit, which yeah, is yeah. Um, the International Day Against Homophobia uh biphobia transphobia yeah, yeah. i think i'm getting the words mixed up because it's a very long acronym and yeah. we just call it ida hobbit yeah yeah but, um, the many phobias the many phobias so with that article um how did you feel after it first went live and was that your first public experience writing about your trans identity yeah it was it was the first time i'd ever put my trans identity public oh my god it was just a surreal moment really because it was just like a drop of relief it was just like all the pressure that had been building up has just been released in that moment and I'm like wow okay and then another completely different wave of emotions hit it was just like so many mixed feelings at once on like one hand I was really happy because it was just like wow I've accomplished something that's actually really freaking huge um and then on the other hand I was just like there was this little lingering thing of like okay now I'm very discoverable to basically anyone I felt a bit more grounded a couple of days after it had been released because I also shared it as well so I used that as my public coming out to basically everyone in my life as well because I posted it all over my social media and then just used that as an excuse to be like hey you guys knew damn well already but like (laughs) in case you missed it (laughs) yeah in case you missed it here you go the world didn't implode um, people weren't coming, knocking at my door, like trying to attack me or whatever. And it was just like, okay, I can exist. I can be visible, but it was sort of surreal because I was still partially invisible. I guess you could say I still had the privilege and the comfort of not being visibly trans the minute I step out the door. So I guess that was a relief for me. 
that was your first time sort of publicly coming out. Do you feel like after you released that, what what kind of reaction did you get? It was overwhelming support, absolutely overwhelming support. I got messages from people who, like from friends of mine that I don't talk with very often or had met like once or twice in different scenarios being like, hey, I read your article and I learned so much. Thank you for wording it this way because now I understand it a little bit more. And I was so surprised it resonated with people in the way that I wrote it to be and I guess that just sort of reinforced like okay my ability to word things in this way is very I don't know effective I guess yeah no definitely I think I mean I read the article I think it came across uh pretty conversational like it was written the way you would expect to have a conversation with you and I think that that can be um very I hate using the term digestible Um, because I don't think that it's a trans person's responsibility to be digestible, Mm. but I do think that that makes it easier for people who maybe hesitate, Mm. um, to be able to absorb themselves in the issue and understand it from like a personal aspect. Um, so I think it was very effective in that way. After you published that, did you feel drawn to do more in the realm of advocacy, whether it's working with Yaxa or through other organizations? Yeah, admittedly, yeah, because it was just like a little bit of an adrenaline rush. Like as soon as I published the article, and I'm like, wow. And so many people had a positive response to it as well. So I think that's a very big contributor to it as well. Had I got like even half the support that I got, I don't know if I would have had the confidence to go forward with it. Um, but yeah, I was extremely lucky, extremely privileged to get the, re- the support that I did. And it really did, yeah, push me into looking into further advocacy because it just felt so great. It really did. Yeah, cool. So how have you found yourself drawn to creative projects that entangle with advocacy? Do you feel like you're in an environment and you know enough people where you come across them naturally or do you have to actually seek out the opportunity to make stuff with a message? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I feel like, yeah, it sort of especially because I'm so involved in the arts industry anyway, because um, most of my jobs tend to be working like for festivals and stuff like that. Um, It just sort of comes naturally as a result of, yeah, who I know. It's really a lot of what has happened has been by accident. I don't know how else to word it other than that. I've just been extremely privileged and extremely lucky. Would you agree that it's not so much what you know as it is who you know? Yeah, very much so, especially in Adelaide as well. Because there is like, there's, do you know the um, six degrees of separation concept? Yes. In Adelaide, there's like two. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I can agree with that. It's it's a very tight-knit community. Do you think that it can be overwhelming, especially for someone new to the community, to sort of be swallowed up in all of the diversity and all of the things that are happening, especially with the intersections of um, arts and culture and queerness? Do you think that it can be very easily overwhelming and that you need to step back from that sometimes? Or do you feel comfortable in that sort of big community? I feel like, yeah, it can absolutely be overwhelming, especially to really baby queers. Um, especially to baby me, I was very intimidated. Um, and especially when meeting like new support groups and stuff like that, like I started really, really small and worked my way up basically. Um, and yeah, naturally because I've had very good experiences with like queer community and stuff like that. 
um, for me personally, became less exhausting and stuff over time. And seeing these connections between like arts and stuff like that, rather than being exhausting over time, it's sort of become fulfilling to see them just, oh, there's a little connection here, there's a little connection here, and it just makes me feel a little bit safer and a little bit more at home, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of queer advocacy, Mm -hmm. would you describe yourself as an advocate? I know that I said I wanted to talk (laughs) to you about advocacy, but is that a label that you would put on yourself? This is interesting because I've had other people call me activist before I adopted the label for myself. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't necessarily say I'm comfortable with it just yet. I feel like I still have to do, for me personally, I'd like to do a little bit more before I call myself an activist per se. Um, it's very new territory for me. So it's still something that I'm navigating right now. Yeah. So you wouldn't call yourself an advocate or an activist, but you would say that you are involved in advocacy or Mm. involved in activism. Yeah, very much so. And I definitely want to get involved in more in the future. So in future, I might become an activist. And So let's go back to Better Together. Mm -hmm. So you facilitated a panel Mm -hmm. um, with a bunch of different speakers, Mm -hmm. all uh, identifying as part of the LGBTQIA plus community. Um, What was the most rewarding part of facilitating that conversation? Oh, I think... Oh, that's such a good question. Because there was a lot of great that came out of that whole situation. I'm very grateful for it. Um... I think one of the biggest takeaways for me would have been becoming a sort of figure or person that I needed when I was their age. Because, I mean, some of the speakers were the same age as me, but one of our our youngest speaker was 12 years old. Oh, wow. Yeah, and they had known they were non-binary since they were like four. And so to be able to facilitate a safe conversation for younger queer people especially that young as well to a whole like audience of people that want to learn and to listen and just because I remember being in those exact situations and now it's like the roles are flipped and so being able to sort of come full circle really from watching that to then facilitating that was definitely one of the biggest takeaways for me. And it's something I don't think I'll ever forget. (laughs) In terms of the entanglement of advocacy and education, um, obviously Better Together was, you mentioned earlier, um, a place where there were discussions about legislation and sort of lesser known aspects of um, issues that affect queer people. Yeah, yeah. How important do you think it is that activism leads with education? And do you think that sometimes, especially with the social media uprising um, and sort of infographics and hashtags becoming such a huge way that we communicate with each other, do you think that sometimes that education aspect is lost? Oh, I don't think I'd say necessarily lost. I'd maybe be more inclined to say oversimplified. Mm. Um, because I think, like I said, I'm still very new to activism. So what I'm about to say might change in the future. Um, but from what I've seen, advocacy is rooted in education, effective advocacy to happen. There needs to be some level of education, whether that be 
like extensive in the form of like this is like showing how legislation affects certain groups like in some of the caucuses at the conference or like you just said like with the infographics and like little statistics and stuff just like little things that can be used as introductory points to people that might not know the whole situation and stuff like that so it's more so that the trouble comes when those infographics or that sort of social media 101 is relied on as everything rather than as an introduction yeah yeah absolutely you definitely need to learn like take some initiative and seek outwards beyond like the infographics and stuff like that because yeah that that oversimplification can be in i mean for me personally just as harmful as not finding out that information at all you don't sort of read a book read a sentence and then just go to someone and describe what the book's about you know yeah yeah no that's a really good way of putting it you can't have an informed opinion if you've only read one page exactly yeah yeah yeah. yeah. it is it can be sometimes a little bit difficult to access some of that information because queer history has like obviously it's had to have been hidden as well Mm -hmm. We want to find this information, but sometimes the information isn't very easy to find. Even just in Adelaide specifically, we have like this ongoing queer history. Mm. And as LGBTQIA plus youth are moving forward, how much do they actually know about what came before them? And I think that's a big part of advocacy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a very big part of advocacy. So I think that uh, a big one, and I think you mentioned this um, in your article for the Smashed Avocado, a big point of a big milestone in queer history was the 1969 Stonewall Uprising. Mm -hmm. And so that was led by transgender women of colour and that was kind of the tipping point for the gay liberation movement in the US. Yep. Do you think that US milestones or international milestones are sometimes seen as um, these massive parts of LGBT history that, which is great that we're getting more and more awareness for that, especially in Pride Month, which is commemorating that milestone um, and has become an international thing in June. But do you think that uh, particularly for Australian young LGBT plus people that they are seeing so much international news that they maybe don't know a lot about the queer history in their own local area? Mm, yeah, that's a that's a very good question, actually. Like while those international um, events are extremely important because especially from coming from powerhouse sort of nations and stuff like the US it sort of trickles down into um us it's very easy for them to overshadow what happens in your local community and i think that takes um to find out what happened what has happened in your local community takes a little bit more digging up for example like i found out a lot of adelaide's queer history through starting with the stonewall riots and then i worked my way down i did all this research with uni so i did an, a, a creative assignment trying to look into um, trans people in history. So that led me to people like um, Lily Elby, who was, I think, one of the first ever trans women to um, surgically transition really, really early on. Yeah, okay. And then I went through, jumped around, like, from Europe and America a little bit, and then from there I found out about some of the stuff that had happened in Adelaide, which then led me to the murder of George Duncan and stuff like that, which was honestly, the case is wild. Yes, it is very wild. So South Australia, 
as a result of the public outcry uh, about the unresolved murders of gay men, including mm. uh, a University of Adelaide law lecturer, George Duncan, the reform came for, for South Australia to decriminalise male homosexuality. And it was the first jurisdiction, the first national jurisdiction in Australia to decriminalise male homosexuality in yeah. 1975, following uh, George Duncan's death in 1972. For those that don't know, Duncan was a target of violence and thrown into the River Torrens, which was then a well-known meeting spot for gay men. Yeah. Um, so it's been 46 years since that happened. And yeah. um, since then, our LGBTQI plus community in Adelaide have, and I'm realising as I'm saying that, that each time I have used the acronym, I have used it in a different way. LGBTQIA, <laughs> LGBTQI, LGBT plus. <laughs> so... <laughs> There are a lot of letters. Uh, maybe I'll just start calling it the alphabet mafia. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that'll, that'll cover it. You'll know what I mean. I don't want to leave any letters out. Um, but since then, Adelaide's community, Adelaide's queer community have built this massive network of events and continue to pursue positive change, which is awesome. But I think that as a lot of younger members are focusing on moving forward, they do lack that knowledge mm, yeah. of um, Adelaide's queer history. So do you yeah, find yeah. that um, even among crowds or um, community groups where a lot of the people have been involved in the community for a long time and are well-known activists. Have you found that even they sort of have gaps in their knowledge in terms of localised queer issues? I feel like that's sort of inevitable though um, because, yeah, like I said, um, LGBT history in itself is super patchy because it's had to have been hidden. Um you can't blame anyone for having those gaps in their history, but I think because there is a lot to learn and there is a lot that is missing or that is difficult to track down. So it's not something that we're introduced to, but do you think that um, your generation, our generation is going to be the ones to sort of change that and to start introducing more of that uh, localized history and be louder about, um, about sort of where, queer community and culture came from to be able to take it forward? I really hope so. I seriously, seriously hope so because I, before I stepped into um, advocacy, I was definitely one of those people that just sort of wanted to realise like, okay, I'm queer and then move on with like a quote unquote traditional sort of life in like gender roles and stuff. But after I found out that for me personally, that was unfulfilling and then found fulfillment in advocacy, I want to try and share that with everyone else. So I really hope that the younger generations can see the power that I've found through advocacy and stuff like that because, it's yeah, it sucks because I can see where they're coming from because being queer is inherently traumatic. You growing up in a cishet normative world, you every queer kid will inevitably face some sort of trauma. So I can very much see how they just want to forget that and just move on. But and it's sad, really. Um, it is. I think that's a really tricky thing to reckon with, especially around the time of Pride or around uh, the time when you've got these marches and you have people celebrating. And especially if you're new to it, it can be really overwhelming and um, you can definitely easily sort of go into this mindset of, yes, I'm queer, but that's not the most interesting thing about me. Mm, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This, is, this is not all I am. I just want to be normal, quote unquote Yeah, yeah. Normal. and it doesn't help that um, people outside of the queer community then tunnel vision you once you come out as queer as well. And so 
like obviously i'm not saying you have to be an activist as well i'm absolutely not saying that that is not the case um no you don't have to justify your queerness yeah exactly like literally just living in itself is radical enough even though it shouldn't be it is so like you have so much more power than you think What red flags have you come across in relation to being openly queer in a public space? Oh, okay, okay. That is very interesting. So this point really relates to queer infighting. Some of the red flags, I guess, for being openly trans or like gender diverse or gender non-conforming specifically in a like public queer space specifically means you're subject to being excluded by your own community i feel because of the amount of lgbt infighting that goes on and yeah it's still something that i'm obviously navigating to this day as every queer person is navigating to this day it's very touchy territory and so i'd say yeah that's probably one been one of the biggest red flags to realize that hey not everyone in your community is going to accept you in just sort of like a general context i feel like one of biggest red flags would be being, I guess, burdened as the representative, if especially if you're the only queer-specific person in that space. You're basically burdened as the um, all-knowing being. <laughs> I yeah, guess. you become you become the guru. You're yeah, the you you're do. the sensei. You're the you're the genie in a bottle and the go-to like for any f- any insensitive questions that yeah. people may have yeah 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 you're literally placed on a pedestal and some people are willing to listen to every word you say and others are waiting for the moment you screw up that's a really good point actually um have you experienced um people sort of asking questions that are insensitive that you wouldn't really want them to ask any other trans person uh, a little bit yeah i've had a couple of people ask for my dead name that's fine i can see you meant no harm, but I still don't quite know how to answer that yet. So, mm. okay. Another interesting thing about trans advocacy is that I've realized how misinformed people are on trans people specifically. There is so much mystery. Like we are literally shrouded in mystery and stuff that seems so easy for me is literally unknown by a lot of other people. So I've also discovered that as well through like starting this advocacy journey. So I've had to go back into like the beginning stages of like, what does trans mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? And sort of explain stuff that comes now naturally to me. Whether it was being invited to Better Together, whether it was asking, being asked to write for the AXA website, whether any orange flags that you came across that made you kind of hesitant and made you think, I don't really know if I want to do this. Oh, definitely the visibility of myself, I guess, Um, because the visibility of being openly trans is very much a double-edged sword because on one hand, it's super empowering to be like some, because sometimes obviously it's the people that are reading and watching silently that can learn the most. Um, But like I said earlier as well, it also makes you more susceptible as like a target. I guess you could say. Um, I, yeah, you sort of lose that privacy. Yeah, you lose a privacy. Um, sometimes you lose, like, your individuality as well. And again, with, like, the tunnel vision thing again. Um, so 
with every one of these situations that I found myself in, visibility has probably been the biggest orange flag for me. But I mean, going through with them, I feel like for me personally, like in a sort of benefit analysis situation, the fulfillment that I get afterwards for me is much more rewarding. Moving on to more positives, what green flags have encouraged you to continue seeking out opportunities to share your story? Ooh, I reckon the community, honestly, the community that you gain through advocacy is one of the biggest green flags. Um, because I've met so many people and just talked to so many, like, kind souls and just so many people that have lived such interesting lives yeah you really meet people that you never would have met otherwise and it's just such an interesting sort of eye-opening experience to be able to interact with these people as well because obviously advocacy is again from what i understand from what little time i've been involved in the um activism scene obviously you can advocate for yourself but advocacy is a group thing like people come together and unite their voices for one or more causes, I guess. Um, that sounded very Google-esque definition, <laughs> but um, yeah, that togetherness is sort of inherent and that welcomingness is just sort of inherent of advocacy and it's just a very, that support that you get is, yeah, it's just so nice. Awesome, and I feel like, I feel the need to add that um, all the things that we've talked about today is general in nature and mm. Dean is not at all sitting on a pedestal representing the entire trans community. Yes, I am only um, one I think... voice in a pool of hundreds of thousands of millions of people. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. I'm glad. Thank you for listening to this episode of Flagged. You can find us on Instagram at flagged underscore pod and on Twitter at flagged pod. This podcast is recorded on the land of the Ghana people and we pay our respects to elders past and present. We also acknowledge the country that you are joining us from and pay our respects to any other Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Thanks for tuning in. Have a good day, everyone.